welcome to What the Fuck Just Happened. I'm your host, Liz Enton. If you listen to the intro, you know my story. If not, here's a brief summary. I'm a science skeptic, and when my dad died, I took a shot in the dark and decided to investigate if there was any possible evidence of an afterlife. I assumed that was as realistic as Santa Claus, but I was desperate. However, I was so blown away by what I discovered that I wrote a book and launched this podcast. In this podcast, I will be talking to some fairly normal people about some really weird shit. I speak with everyone from psychic mediums and afterlife researchers to ordinary people who've had some inexplicable experiences. So come, listen, there's no need to draw any final conclusions. Keep an open mind and wonder, what the fuck just happened? I have Kathy Nadel. I know her through the Forever Family Foundation. She's a certified medium there. She is also a nurse and is part of the military. So you're not going to get a more trustworthy person than that. And she can take it over. Hi, thank you. Thanks for having me on, Liz. I'm happy to say that I have been uh, retired from the army as of June 1st, 2021. So I am very glad that I am now newly retired. I did spend 30 years in the military. I ended up retiring in the rank of Colonel. I'm still working full-time as a registered nurse and I am a certified medium with the Forever Family Foundation. And I'm also newly certified as a grief educator with the Dr. David Kessler, uh, which is part of grief.com. So it's, a, it's, a, it's really a pleasure to be here with you, Liz. And I know you're so helpful to the Forever Family Foundation as a volunteer and also such a big part of our grief retreat. Oh, thank you. And I'm just going to say, first of all, thank you for your service in the military as well. I know that all of us are just so grateful for people who dedicate their lives that way. And secondly, just so everyone knows, we are doing a Valentine's special because Valentine's for those of us in grief is so hard. Even for me, who hasn't lost my partner, and it was a family all day. I always would get chocolates and hearts and all these little things for my dad. So, you know, I'll see families out with like daughters with their dad. If they're, it's just hard. So I know Kathy and I, that's something we shared in common. Yes. Yeah. Both of our fathers are past. And, you know, when I was a little girl, my dad used to come home and he would always have that small heart from Whitman chocolate. And he would give one to my sister and one to me, and he would give us a Hallmark card. And you just think of it, I, I walk down the aisle in, in the store and it's not the big heart, it's the little heart. It's the heart that he would give me that always gives me that pang of, oh, he's, you know, he's my dad. So yes, Valentine's Day is a very mixed emotion day. We think about those we loved, especially if we've lost a significant other. Um, the holiday does represent love. That's love for all of our friends and family. 
And, and we still try to celebrate it with those that we still have here with us. So it's a very mixed emotion day for a lot of people. You have been studying in terms of helping people with grief through the David Kessler program. Any tips for people just to get through the day, the day leading up to it? Holidays are brutal. One of the big takeaways uh, from attending David's program was you're just learning all the time in grief. And uh, even as grief educators, he himself has said he's learned so many lessons himself. And his website is really detailed. If you go to grief.com, it actually says like the best things to say to someone, the worst things to say to someone. You just never really know how those things that are said are going to be received. And also he talked many, most recently about many people offering hugs. Some people feel that, you know, a hand on a shoulder or a hand on a knee, that they're helpful. And through David's conversation, it's not always helpful. We think maybe as the person trying to offer our condolences or our sympathy, that it helps. And some people are not at the point to receive that. And that was a learning for me because I'm a hugger. Somebody wants a hug, I'll give it. I found that really kind of enlightening because everyone in grief is feeling kind of different in their grief. And another thing that Dr. Kessler talked about was that we will grieve for the rest of our lives. And he said that because we love them for the rest of our lives and grief is love. And he really drives that point home. And the coursework was so tremendous because everyone in that program had experienced a loss, one loss, two losses, multiple losses. And there was many of us that were in the course. I went in as a registered nurse. We had social workers that were in the program. And many of the participants were just there because they had experienced loss. And Dr. Kessler even spoke about the recent loss of Lisa Marie Presley. He was very good friends with her. But a lot of people did not realize that she had participated in his grief program because she had lost her son. And it was the the common grief that the two of them had shared as losing a child that really formed, formed their friendship. He says very often that friends are made out of strangers with a common loss. And David Kessler is really tremendous. He speaks about a program that I recently just joined called Tender Hearts. And it's for anyone that has had a grief, you know, that is in grief and that has had had a loss, but you can join it. And no matter how long ago your person has passed or no matter how long ago your several family members have passed, you can join that and it's a support group. So Tender Hearts is joining a group. They very, very similarly to Forever Family is they will put you in with a group with a common loss. So Liz, you and I would be in the group maybe that has lost a parent. They will also pair up people that have lost a child and they've paired up people that have lost significant others and on and on. So I think that actually is really great because everyone's, maybe in our case, everyone's dad will be different, but it's that feeling of being a child that now no longer has their dad. So, and that's a big loss because that's our, you know, our first introduction to uh, who's going to show me the ropes, you know? And for me, that was my dad. My dad showed me a lot. So I'm sure yours, your dad did too, right? I consider him one of my best friends. Like we fight a lot because we were very stubborn. 
opinionated people in certain ways, but just like this rock, like no matter what was going on in the world, the sense of safety. And even in fights, I remember I was like, we're not speaking to each other. I'd call him every night, be like, I'm not speaking to you. Have a good night. Love you. (laughs) Just, I don't think a day went by of my life that I hadn't talked to him until he was unable to speak anymore. And so, I mean, I'd be traveling like Bolivia backpacking and I would find a way and call him every night, check in or email if I couldn't call. And oh, yeah. So yeah. he was a huge, like yeah. he wasn't just a dad on the side. Like he was such a big part of my life. And it sounds like your dad too. Oh, yeah. Well, it's funny when you talk about Bolivia, because when I had to go to Iraq with the military, I was nervous because I was like, how am I going to communicate? Because there were so many rumors like, there's not going to be phones and you may not get to email. And they, they were bombing us like every day in 2004. So it was a very trying time over there. So I, I quite literally taught my dad, who was many years retired, how to use the computer and how to send an email and uh, how to reply to an email and all of that stuff. And I was so proud of him for doing that because we couldn't get phone calls. And uh, I had to be conscious of what I put in emails because it would, we may not have email for a few days because connectivity might've been down or something. So I had to keep it light because if you leave someone with a cliffhanging feeling, that's a little unnerving. But you know, it's interesting, Liz, because through our conversations, we talk about evidential readings. And so interesting because as a medium, we work with symbols, you know? So I see a symbol of this or I see, and I work up with clairvoyant and I work as a clear audience. I see spirit showing me something. I was going to say clairvoyant means and clairaudient means, you know, just because people might not know. So clairvoyant seeing, clairaudient hearing. Sure. Yeah. And that's how we work. You know, that's how I work. And it's interesting because when I see spirit doing something, it might have been their hobby. With my dad, he was very big into fishing and he was an outdoorsman. But yet he also had hobbies that the average person may not have known about it. And you and I had a conversation because my dad's hobby was also your dad's hobby. And we were in shock when we kind of realized that because it's a very unique hobby. And my dad got a lot of awards for his hobby. So it was like synchronicity when I realized that your dad and my dad were very similar. My dad was an older man. Your dad was an older man. And also we had like a very close relationship. My dad, even though I was the younger one, my dad trained me to go fishing and and walk in the woods and go hunting and all of that stuff that he liked to do. But it was he didn't want to do it. And he used to say, I don't want to do something I enjoy without you. So I'm going to show you. And if you like it, you can come back. So it's kind of interesting with that. But um, it is very interesting because when you realize as children, our parents may have been older, like my both parents were older than the average person that would have been having children in the late 1960s. And I had the same thing, but it was a little more common because I was born in 89. So a little more common and in New York, but still, especially my dad, he was the age of most of my friends' grandfathers. So that's a trauma in a way as you grow up with the worry. Yeah. You know, it's so interesting because one of the things that I really remember about that and I was growing up in the 70s, right? So I would have been like 10 years old in 1978. And there was a lot of cool TV shows. And because my dad was an older guy, 
he didn't want us watching some of the real popular TV shows because Three's Company, which was with two women and a man living together, my dad was going crazy over that. And all the other kids' parents were uh, allowing them to see it. And it was a generational thing. And I think you probably went through that too, where you may have been allowed or not allowed because of your dad, right? Well, my dad was very lenient with me in most ways, but some of his values would sound absurd to me. And I I always, I was always given the choice. Like I didn't really have many rules growing up. I was a responsible kid. I mean, I drank, I did all that, but I took school very seriously. And I was always given freedom, but some of the concerns he would have would seem traditional and insane. And we would fight about that. And I would be like, are you fucking getting me this crazy? Like what sexist, like crazy bullshit is this? I talked to my dad and I, we both like swear a lot. So <laughs> I know people are like, you didn't talk to your dad that way. I like, yeah, I did. We both are like New Yorkers who say fuck probably way more than we should have. Um, I do want to back up. There's actually a few things I want to say. You mentioned the hobby, which I'm not going to say here, but I was just very impressed because not only did we bond about that, if anyone's read my first book and I was concerned that there was a certain hobby that I gave it a fake thing in my book for evidential reasons. I believe I called it either poker or tennis. And Kathy, during my reading, got this hobby that I'd been waiting for mediums to get forever. And anyone knows who's been following me knows that I don't give information. I say yes, no, I do the Winbridge policy of readings. And she knew his hobby. And that meant a lot to me. And amazingly, she said that she knew it because her dad had the same hobby. So which is not a common hobby. And that just was something that was to me very evidential and meaningful. I thought everyone should know that because my reading with Kathy was very, very factual, evidential. And so I just really appreciated that. And I wanted to verify how we talked about the hobby, because we didn't just have a conversation about it. You demonstrated tremendous evidence that yes, our loved ones are with us. That's the piece of it that is so important. Because for you, you were seeking that. And a lot of times when we sit with a client, They have no idea the stuff that's going to come up in a reading because like we say, we're not doing the reading. We're just repeating what our loved ones are showing me or telling me, and they're really in control. So as much as I keep asking them questions like, show me this, tell me this, how did, how did you pass? What happened here? What they don't always answer all that because they're in control. So very much their personality will come out in a reading because if it's the way we interpret it, and that's the biggest thing with being a medium, we do our best to do the interpretation, but it's very, very interesting, especially when you get involved with someone who's had a traumatic passing or a sudden passing, all of those details really mean a lot to the family. They do. It's like a moment of getting to be with your loved one again, in a way, as well as for me, who's such a science-minded skeptic, that it's just evidence. It's more and more evidence. How did you, you said you were psychic and medium as a child. And what was the first implications you got that you had abilities? Yeah. So I talk about this in the first book, seeing more than clouds in your coffee, but my dad and I used to go fishing and he said one day, I'm going to teach you to go crabbing. Now crabbing is very different. There's like this seal kind of a trap It's four sides. It's a square size thing. And you throw this thing into the water. It's on a rope and you leave it alone. So my dad being very tall, 6'2", he says, don't touch the rope. So he starts walking away and he's walking down the pier 
you know, it was like a duck thing. And there was a bunch of little boys there. So he went over to say, what are you guys fishing for? And I heard, pick it up, pick it up, pick it up. And it was getting louder. So I went over and I started pulling the rope. And I see him turn around and he's kind of road marching back to me. And I thought, oh, my God. So I pulled it out of the water with like the, the strength of a nine year old, you know, and the biggest blue crab was in the net. And these boys came running over. They went, oh, my God, look at the size of that. And my father was in shock. And I, and I said, wow, I'm going to pay attention to that. I heard it. So that for me was my first experience with clairvoyance. I heard pick it up and it kept getting louder and stronger. And I followed it. And it's the biggest blue that day, blue crap uh, that day on the dock. And I thought, well, that's really cool. So I listened to that. And that's, that's really the piece that for me, between that and having the dreams and that other stuff. I want to back up because I have a few questions. I'm fascinated okay. that <laughs> you're a nurse and in the military, because again, both of those are very, you know, I think most people in our society would consider those very, very honest, trustworthy careers, not woo-minded. So first I want to ask you as a nurse, are there any interesting experiences you had? How is your mediumship tied into it in any way? Yeah. So I was psychic since a child, um, but a lot of people are drawn to nursing because nursing is a healing art. And as a little girl, I was running up the stairs to take care of my grandmother and I was about seven. And I gave her a glass of water and she looked at me and she said, you know, you're going to be a nurse, right? And I was like, what? That was the only time anyone in my entire life told me you're going to be something. And I just kind of like ran away or whatever. And many years later, I did become a nurse. But my mom, when she was alive, she was not a fan of me being in the healing arts. She had seen her parents struggle in the hospital. She had seen her parents, you know, go through illnesses and pass away. And she said, I worked at a convent. My first job was being a nurse's aide and I worked in a convent. And I said, it's, it's convenient. It's right next to the high school, mom. Why, why are you upset about it? And he, she said, it's sad. And she affiliated illness and people not well and people needing to be in the hospital because it's sad. And she's right, because when people get a diagnosis of terminal illness, if someone has a condition that's either very difficult for a physician to treat, it is sad. But her experience with it was because her parents were really never sick. And then when they got sick, it was basically the end of their life. So she had put two and two together. And in the convent, I didn't really see a lot of sad stuff. You know, the, the nuns were older and we took care of them. But then as I started my nursing education, they allowed us to be a student nurse in a local hospital. And as a student nurse, they would call you and tell you, you have to go to this department and that department and whatever you needed to pitch in. And it was Valentine's Day. And I think it was about 19. And as a student nurse, you didn't wear white. You would wear this like terrible green color uniform. And everyone would know you were the student nurse because of the color of the uniform. And I got to the emergency room and the nurse's station is filled with these beautiful Valentine decorations and floating hearts. And they said, we're waiting for the back room to be cleared. The family's still in there. And that's when I realized, oh, we're going to be taking someone to the morgue. Someone passed away. It kind of clicked in my mind. And I saw a young mom and her daughter, who looked very young, younger than me, leave the room. 
and they were crying. And I thought, oh my God, it's Valentine's Day. So as we get into the room, they're explaining we're going to have to go to the morgue. And it hit me. The staff is saying this man was just walked in and had a sudden heart attack and giving me the details that at a young mind, I thought, geez, I don't know if I need these details, but it stayed with me. Because it was a great holiday. It's Valentine's Day. Most people identified that with love and candy. And, and this happened, but the family associated with the sudden heart attack. And for years later now, I mean, I'm 54 years old. And I'm like, I still think of that. And, and I think about that because as a very young in the field of nursing, I have to say, Liz, that my mom was right that there are situations in nursing that are really sad. And that day was the first day that I actually could agree with her because that was really very traumatic. And a lot of passings for families are traumatic and the sudden ones especially are. So, I mean, that's, that's just a Valentine story that was nursing related, but it was quite, quite learning for me that experience. It really was. That sounds like something that would stay with you the rest of your life. Do you ever find as a medium as well, do any of the people you helped as a nurse after they pass, have you ever gotten communication from them? Have you ever known weird things like a doctor will say, oh, this person's going to make it and you just know they're not? Are there any stories like that? I have, I have a story that is really interesting. I was working in New York City and I was a younger nurse and all of our patients were cancer patients. But when you have cancer, you have other things wrong. And this particular patient had diabetes. And I was at the bedside and nursing changes. So if there's any nurses listening, you would probably remember. But if you had a patient with dropping blood sugar, automatically you would want to push dextrose, which is a very high concentrate of like a sugar substance into the body. And it was just the doctor and myself. And I was calling the patient his very complicated last name over and over again. And he looked like he, we were losing him, you know? So we started getting all the emergency equipment up and the doctor's pushing it and I'm repeating it, repeating it. And he's coming too. And the doctor's looking at me like, oh my God, I thought like we were getting ready to go further with like further emergency stuff. And I said, wow, you came back. And I kept repeating his name. Now I have a very strong New York accent. And it's just like, and he said, yes. And I thought, wow, he's talking. And then he said, you, you. And he started to point his finger at me. And I said, what? And he says, you don't say my name right. And I said, oh, my God. And he said, when he was going under, he was, the way he described it, slipping further away. But my voice was the only thing that he hung on to because I was saying it so wrong. And he, it captured his attention, like, oh, my God, oh, my God, I got to get back and fix that pronunciation. So and I tell that over the years, especially, you know, when I have over the years in, in the military, I taught nursing for a period of time in the military. And I would always tell my young soldiers as a nurse, you know. I did this. And as a nurse, you know, you, you learn your way through nursing and you learn your way through experience. But most nurses would agree that you really remember things when a patient corrects you. 
And it was for that minute, it was the patient correcting with his name. So for me, I thought, wow. And a day or two later, I was absorbing it because we worked in oncology, which is cancer nursing. I approached the doctor and I said, what I saw two days ago, they really, they, the last sense, the doctors talk about this all the time. And they talk about this in hospice all the time. The last sense you lose is your hearing. So they always say, if you're at the bedside and the person's terminal, or if they're on a ventilator, you keep talking to them because that's apparently scientifically the last sense we lose. And I witnessed that because he came back saying, I heard your name. So I told one of the doctors who was not in the room and he smiled and he goes, why are you surprised by that? You know, and I thought, geez, you know, I felt stupid like telling him, but it was the first time that I was able to witness it and not just witness it as a nurse. I was at the bedside. I could have been the person's daughter or whatever. And I thought that was so important. So over the years, the biggest thing, if I've been at the bedside with people that are passing away, some families, you know, you just say you're there to support them. But even when my dad was dying at home, you know, my cousin, her daughter, my father's friend was there. We all talked to him and we just kept talking and talking and talking. And, you know, the TV was on and I thought, geez, we have the TV on. But my dad always had the TV on. And again, it's more voices, you know. So it's that concept of hearing. So I thought, I don't know if that's helpful to you, but these are personal experiences that I just have witnessed that even me as a nurse or even me in the military, even me, I get surprised. Even as a medium, Liz, I deliver a message and I'm like, oh my God, like I even get surprised because it just shows spirit works so hard to get a message to us or to provide evidential evidence of their life. You know, it's really incredible. Some of the stuff that comes through in a reading is just really incredible. So what's some of the most evidential weird things that have happened in a reading that you yourself were like, oh my God, what the fuck? There's so many. So recently I worked with Chance Kelly. He's a very well-known actor. He was in the American Sniper and he had me go and do a paranormal visit to the Thomas Paine house. And if anybody looks it up, that's on YouTube. In the middle of doing that paranormal investigation for Thomas Paine, who's a historical person, I did a reading, like an impromptu reading for chance. And his reaction was like, oh my God, like he didn't know that was happening. I didn't know that was happening. And his mom's spirit is just so strong that she started to show me happy days and like Laverne and Shirley. And it's like a 1950s kind of a TV show that was very popular in the 70s. And if you watch the YouTube video, Chance says, she starts talking about, you know, Laverne and Shirley, and she's talking about happy days. And he goes, that was literally my mom and her sisters. That's how they dressed. That's how they acted. That was them through and through. So I was like, oh, wow. And you could see that on the YouTube video, which I think is pretty cool. Just recently, I did a live demonstration. And during the live, sometimes we get validation right there and then in the room, in the group, the family will say, yes, I understand that. Yes, I agree to that, that information. 
However, sometimes the mediums and forever family will get an email and they'll get an email like at the time I had no idea what you were talking about. Well, most recently I did a very complicated reading for um, two women that were connected to a man that had passed in a very tragic manner, a sudden manner. And it was very recently, like maybe two or three weeks ago. So it was a very recent passing. There was a lot of details to the reading, but I kept going over something over and over. And I kept seeing matching tattoos. And the way it was coming through, I kept seeing a tattoo and a tattoo. And I kept explaining. And then I explained it to everyone that was in the room. And I said, you know, recently, uh, Lisa Marie Presley, they were talking about one of her last posts on social media. She had posted her foot and her son's foot before he passed away. They had matching tattoos. It was the same exact symbol. And I said, I keep seeing that over and over again. That has to do with this message that I'm delivering, matching tattoos. I kept saying it. Everyone's looking at me like, okay, you know, like whatever, you know, no one's taking it. So I said, okay, just keep note of it. And just a few days ago, like four or five days ago, I got a message from one of the two ladies that said that she reached out to people that were closer to this person. And it turns out that his girlfriend, And all of their friends are all getting the same tattoo. And that is something she did not know in that event. And here I am going on and on and on, you know, and I was like, was like, okay, finally, we got the message on that. But also another thing that um, they do do for me is they'll bring up something that's funny. And I like that. It's so true to them. And in that recent public event, yeah, I was reading for a young lady and I said, wow, your dad is showing me like a badge. I feel like he's saying I, the cop or the sheriff, and he's showing me a badge and he's funny. He's funny. And she said, yes. She said, my dad's best buddy was the police officer. And the two of them were really funny together. And that was like, that caught her off guard because it wasn't something that she was expecting to happen. And that made her happy because he was doing a shout out to his buddy, you know, and a lot of that stuff comes through. It's so true to life. She said that would have been my dad. He would have done something like that impromptu, you know, let's go off course and do this. So those are just a few examples. I know it's a lot. So and when that happens again, and again, and again, I mean, statistically, it's inexplicable by chance It happened to you one time all these years, someone can attribute it to chance, but this happens to you all the time. And that, that I, I don't even know what the statistical odds of that would be. But it's so significantly beyond chance that really, I think that's such a reason I have such strong hope. And I mean, more than hope, hope is a wishful thing. I, I call it a preponderance of evidence. It's tangible. I actually want to ask you, and I don't know if this is even something that applies. When you were in the military, did your abilities tie in in any way? Would you know things? Or I mean, to me, I would think it'd yeah. be very hard. You might know who was going to make it and who wasn't. We don't have to talk about this if it's painful to get into this time. No, it's okay. I I actually, I have two books out. The first one is Sing More Than Clouds in Your Coffee. The second one I just came out, it's called And She Danced by the Light of the Moon. And that book was inspired because everyone that has met me or read the first book, they said, this is all great, but what about you? Tell me how you grew up or tell me how you lived this way. So the book is like kind of a compliment 
adaptation of a lot of stories about me. And one of them is about being in Iraq. When I first got to Iraq, one of the biggest things is, is we never knew what was going to happen. Like, uh, we thought we were going to have this job, then they give you that job. We thought we were going to this location, you went to that location. Like nothing was really set in stone. You really couldn't like bank on anything of happening. But the first week we were there, everybody would go to one of Saddam's palaces, which was literally a real palace. And um, they said, this is now our chow hall, which is where you're going to have breakfast, lunch and dinner. And you're going to stand on a line and it's a marble place and you're going to eat. And we were like, OK, this is the chow hall. And we're like looking around like, oh, my God, like this place is just like to the nines. Like he had like gold furniture and things like that. So we thought this is surreal, you know. And one morning there was a lieutenant and I was a major at the time who had traveled. I came from Brooklyn and, and this lieutenant had come from upstate New York. And, and I saw him sitting there eating and he's eating. And I walked right up to him and I said, Lieutenant. And he said, yes. And I said, are you going out, out? And out, out meant outside the wire. Out, out meant you're going on a convoy. And he said, yes, ma'am. And I said, okay, I want you to be safe. And he went, okay. Everyone said, be safe, you know? And I said, no, really. And he went, okay. So he went back to eating a cereal and I walked away. And about two or three hours later, the office that I was working in was the ones that would get the call if someone was injured. And it was because we had a physician in our office that would evaluate for Purple Heart Awards. And a Purple Heart Award is if you're injured in combat. So the phone rang and uh, the colonel answered the phone. She started to get a pen and paper and she started to take names down. And she said my name. And I stood up and I ran over to her because I was like a liaison for her. I did a lot of running things around. And uh, she hung up the phone and she said, uh, some of our guys got hit this morning. And I said, who? And she held the paper up and this guy's name was on it. And I said, uh, we might have a problem. And she said, why? And I said, because I warned him this morning. And she said, what do you mean you warned him? I said, well, you know, you know, a lot of people don't know, but I have these visions. And she said, stop talking like that <laughs> immediately. Stop talking like that. Um, she said, they're all alive, um, but they're, you know, they could be wounded. We're going to send the doctor to evaluate. And, um, you know, they all lived. And uh, the next day I met them and they were injured. Two of the guys were really injured and two of the guys were not. And the guy that I had warned was not. And it was an IED. They had rolled, the car had, the vehicle had rolled over an IED. And what happened is it exploded in the middle of the vehicle. So the two passengers in the front had nothing. The two passengers in the back had everything. So IED, if no one knows, um, it's a blast injury. So it will cause shrapnel to go all over you. And um, so these guys that got injured, when the, they heard the story, they felt that I had protected them in some way because I had spoken to the lieutenant and they wanted to touch me and their hands were injured. And I said, it's okay, it's okay. So short time after that, a lot of people started approaching me and I said, no, 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 no. We're not going to do this here. But I was so glad to meet that soldier many years later because he was still in the military, he was still serving. He had a wonderful family, which, you know, he was a single guy at the time. He had a wonderful family and he was still serving in the military. And I tell that story in a very brief uh, synopsis. But after I came home from Iraq, because we were almost killed, 
numerous times. My battle buddy said to me, you have to go public. You have to do readings for people. Who cares what anybody thinks? Because you have a gift and you really need to share it. So afterwards, I was still in the military and I started doing public work. I started doing media, radio, public events, working in Salem. And I had to start telling my supervisors, some of them were colonels, some of them were generals. And I had to say, I do this stuff. I just want you to know, because, you know, as a high ranking person, you're going to have a security clearance and other things that could be complicated, but they were all fine with it. Not one of them said cuckoo or anything like that. They were very respectful, but they were more impressed with my military duties than whatever I was doing on the side. So I was, I, I was so happy to tell my dad that I said, so-and-so, I had to tell so-and-so about the radio show. I had to tell so-and-so about the, the, the gig I'm doing, or I had to tell someone. And his face was like bracing for like, and I said, no, they're fine with it, dad. He was like, okay, like, you know, that whole thing. So it was very difficult. There are things about Iraq that, you know, I'll never publicly talk about, but that was the one story that I actually felt had a good outcome. We don't always, especially being clairvoyant, very much the way it's depicted in movies, we don't always see the whole scene. And that is frustrating because in a dream, I will get pieces of something. And when I wake up, I'm like, I know what's going to happen. And it doesn't always happen that way. It is present, but it may not go in the direction I think that portion of the dream I remember is going to go in. And that's the piece that is very troublesome because it, you can't really warn people if you don't really understand the whole message. So that's the piece. Approximately 185,000 murder cases went unsolved from 1980 to 2019. On average, 66% of homicides are solved each year. So what about the other 34%? Alarmingly, the number of murder cases that went unsolved by police hit a new high in 2020, resulting in only 50% of cases being solved, leaving far too many families with no answers, no resolution, no closure. That's why we investigate and report on unsolved cases, to spread the word in hopes of helping families who are searching for answers. We don't sleep, we're just actively looking for her. These girls were alive. They were living, breathing people. They weren't a picture in the media. There was a, a body found in a truck recently. None of us know anything about that body. Who, who was it? What happened? What could have happened? Who could have been involved? There's no answer. And, and it's just horrible. A true crime series investigating mysterious unsolved cases. Real people, real stories, real crimes. Tune into Speaking of Crime with your hosts, Gia and John. Available on Apple, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to podcasts. We are at Speaking of Crime on Instagram and Facebook, and at Crime Speaking on Twitter. Club Care is a charity organization founded by Emma Justice after the loss of her father, David Justice, to glioblastoma. Club Care is dedicated to supporting children and families dealing with cancer. 
They strive to create joyful moments through meaningful projects impacting individual families, as well as larger oncology communities. Funding for all projects is raised through philanthropic donations. Go to makingheadway.org backslash clubcare programs for a complete list of programs and activities. Actually, I have two questions from everything you said. First of all, when you knew this man was at risk and said, be careful out there, how did you get that? Did, was there a voice telling you? Was it just a feeling? Did you physically see something? What was your experience at that moment? So with him, I felt directed. It's like if you were in um, Macy's and you're walking through the women's clothing and you see a red shirt on a red rack and you are just going right for that red shirt on that red. You don't know why. You don't even know what, what that is going to look like up close, but you're like, I have to go see that. You feel compelled. And that's how I felt. And that's probably one of the few times that have actually done that. Because in my work, I don't offer readings unless someone has seeked me out. I don't go up to someone and say, I have a message from someone. I don't do that. And that instance, I felt very directed to speak to him. And I, I did feel that it was a warning. I did feel that it was a warning. And that was the only time. But that's also not giving a reading because the guy kind of laughed it off like, yeah, everybody tells me to be careful. Like anytime you left that compound, if someone didn't say be careful, they were not conscious. <laughs> we were all saying, be careful. Yeah, it was a very dangerous place. But it felt different because I'm imagining if I was in your position, every time my friends or anyone left, I would feel that, oh my God, I want them to be careful, worried. And I'm sure you felt that as a human, as anyone yes. would, but this yeah. one felt different in a yes. way. That's right. And then now you said you've gotten partial information in dreams that you know some, do you have an example of that where you knew something was going to happen, but didn't know that? Yeah, I actually knew something was going to happen, but I didn't know it. I'll give you an example. I was a young girl and I, very young teen age stuff. And I had a dream of the lady across the street and the lady across the street I used to take care of, you know, in my living life. And I was kind of like everyone's helper. So my parents would be like, oh, she can help your wife get out of the wheelchair. She can, because I worked in the convent. So they started to kind of farm me out to the neighborhood like, oh, she works at the convent. She can help you with your wheelchair and she can help you, you know, get your wife out of bed and whatever. So here I am going around the neighborhood, taking care of people. And the lady directly across from our house lived up a very steep driveway and she had had a stroke and she was in a wheelchair. And in my dream, I went up this long driveway. I saw the whole thing, this black asphalt and my cat that I had when I was a very little girl was in the dream with me. And, and her name was Toy Toy. And I went to the back of the house and there was my neighbor in a wheelchair and she stood up and she hugged me. And I was in shock in the dream, my God, because I would always carry her out of her wheelchair. I you know, didn't remember her standing up in a very long time. So I woke up and I went right to my dad and I said, something's wrong with so-and-so. And he said, why are you saying that? I said, well, Toy Toy was in the dream and Miss, Mrs. So-and-so was in the dream and she stood out of the wheelchair and hugged me. And he said, it's just a dream. And I said, okay. Two hours later, the doorbell rings and it's her daughter. And I could hear her at the door. 
and I hear him say, I'm so very sorry. And I started to cringe. She said, mom passed away. She was taken to the hospital and she passed away last night. And when he shut that door, he turned around and he said, don't ever tell anyone about dreams like that again. And I was, I can't tell you, I was so confused because it was real. And I thought, if I can't tell anyone, who can I tell? And my dad was a very strict Roman Catholic. I mean, to the day he passed away. But as he got older, he was a bit more open to this stuff. However, that was a prophecy in his mind. And that was something that should not happen. So he was shutting it down. <laughs> and, and it was so confusing to me because I felt like I had done something wrong. So that's why when I work with children that are psychic or I work with parents with children that are having dreams or that are having visions, you have to be so careful because my dad gave me the feeling that what I did was wrong. And I didn't, in my mind, think I had any control over it. So if I can't control it, how could I, how could I stop doing something because it's wrong? So it was a little mixed message at that time. But I don't know if that answers your question. But till now, more than 40 years later, it's left an impression on my mind. That's evidential. It also talks about, which makes me sad, so much stigma in this work and afterlife evidence and coming from both angles, like you said, your family was very religious and believed in God. And I'll often hear from mediums that in their religious communities or families, this is looked down upon. I come from a very secular, intellectual and in that culture, it's looked down upon. If my dad was living and someone else in my life had passed away that led me down this path, my dad living and my grandma, would, my grandparents in general would have been horrified at my doing this, like horrified. And it's just so sad. So I guess I'm just telling people who hear this, there's just a lot of social stigma about something that there shouldn't be. And we can, it's probably a billions of historical reasons as to why, which would be a whole other podcast. That we, but it's just, it's really unfortunate because I know almost every single medium I've spoken with has dealt with that stigma. Almost every single researcher and scientist has dealt with that stigma. It's very brave to still move forward with it. What it does for both science, understanding of consciousness and the grieving. I mean, for me as an atheist, person who was dealing with deep, deep grief, I do not know how I would have gotten through what I went through without learning this. And it was your dad saying that. And it's very good people with good intentions who say negative things about this. It's not like they want to cause any harm. And so it, that sounds very confusing. Yeah. The thing about that whole thing for me that was so true as a little girl is I knew there was something wrong. And the only reason why I knew there was something wrong was because my cat was already passed away. So that was the clue that she was probably with Toy Toy because Toy Toy was in quote unquote heaven. So that's why when she stood out of the wheelchair, I knew something had happened to her. I was just looking at it. When you think of my young mind, I was trying to put the pieces together. So it's like A plus B equals C. <laughs> so my question is, how do you interpret that? Do you think you were getting a psychic message or a psychic dream? Or do you think it was mediumship and she was coming and thinking you and 
actually yeah. her discarnate consciousness was communicating with you. Yeah. So there's a lot. I think there's a lot to be offered because in my true opinion, that would have been more of a visitation that came through in my dream, which would have been like in my dream state. That for me was a visitation because when she hugged me, I felt it. And that to me was more than just a dream being a dream. And I've had, that's one of the things that people try very hard at is to understand the difference between that visitation where they're coming and then just having a dream that's just a dream. And that's the thing that is really very hard for people. And I had a dream recently of someone that was very close to me. And I, the next day, even as a medium, I tried to look at every piece of that and say, was that just a dream or was that a visitation? And I was literally like, like tug of war with myself because I wasn't convinced that it was a visitation, but it was the closest dream that I've had where we were arm in arm and literally, and all the other dreams since he's passed, he's been running away from me. He was running down a staircase. He was running away from me and I couldn't catch up to him. But this dream, we were finally arm in arm the way we used to walk. And he was wearing his leather jacket and all that, you know? So to me, I was still trying to twix out was that a visitation because it was the closest that I've gotten to him. So even, I want everyone to know that's listening, even the mediums, we even struggle. We're trying to figure out, was this a dream or was this a visitation? So it's, it's, it's very frustrating. We want everything to be perfect and it's never going to be perfect. <laughs> it's not. Do you have any suggestions or tips for anyone who's wondering if it was just a dream versus a visitation? I don't know, though, because when I experience it myself, I go back and forth. And I think it's normal to go back and forth because we're using our heart and our mind. So our heart, I wanted it to be a visitation. But in my mind, I said, well, it, it wasn't this and it wasn't that, and whatever, you know. So it's really hard. I think you have to just go with whatever your experience is. I have met with people. I have a very good friend. The night that his father died, he went to bed and he said to me, he couldn't believe how deep he fell asleep because he was so upset. It was not an expected passing. And it was kind of a very dramatic rushing to the hospital scene and all this. And he laid down in bed and he said, I can't believe how fast I fell asleep and how deep I fell asleep. And he said, and I woke up. He said, it felt like someone sat on the bottom of the bed. And that's what made his eyes open. And he said he had this very second, millisecond kind of a fast thank you from his dad. And he knew it was his dad. He, he literally the next day said, my dad was in my bedroom. And till this day, which is probably 15 years later, he, there's no convincing him that that was not his dad. He literally felt like the cushion went down on the bed and that's what made his eyes pop open. But it's hard because I've sat with so many people where they say, I saw literally my son sitting in my room and they're transparent. Some of the feedback is very similar where they're not completely solid there's a little bit of a transparency or they look a little bit shadowy, but it's usually half. 
So, I mean, you and I both know people that are in, in our group in the Forever Family Foundation and Lloyd Outerback, and there's other people that we've had so many wonderful conversations with that could probably go into this in more scientific detail. But when I have sat with people, I have heard that time and time again, that it's usually half of their body and that it's very um, shadowy or very, some people actually have explained it glistening, uh, which I find very like kind of really nice to explain it. But it's really a personal kind of experience. You can't predict that. You can't say tonight I'm going to have a visitation. Tonight I'm going to have a dream. I always tell people, set the intention, say whoever's on the other side, if you want to come in, into my dream or give me a great message. Or I always tell people that. Um, but I talk to spirit all the time. You know, if I'm in the car and I see something, I'm like, dad, can you believe they kept that restaurant open or something? You know, I still talk to them as if they're here. And I find that very helpful. It's healing for us, but I also feel like the other side still is connected to us. I talk to my dad and I talk to my mentor, Fran, all the time too. You know, Fran, and she was like my rock and mentor. And yeah, that's been a hard one for me. So probably aside from my dad, that's the hardest loss I've ever dealt with. Um, um, so yeah. you're very close. Yeah, there's nothing like Fran's laugh. Nothing like oh, Fran's laugh. Oh my God. Yeah. Yes, if any of you listening can listen to like the old Signs of Life radio from Forever Family, you'll hear her voice. Oh, she's one of the funniest people I ever knew. Yeah, what a good heart. Yeah, really a good heart. And a straight shooter. She always told it like it was and really just a great person. Yeah, definitely told it like it was. (laughs) (laughs) That's an understatement. (laughs) And but she, she's also like a pioneer. Her and Bob are really, to me, as much as this work develops, you know, and I recently was with Dr. Lori Nadell. She wrote the forward to my book and she wrote several books. She's written seven books, but one of the main books that she wrote was The Sixth Sense. And she also wrote The Five Gifts. And she was writing books in the late 80s when we didn't have new age shops and we didn't have a lot of uh, new age sections and Barnes and Noble and all that. And she talks about how far we've come in 30 or 40 years to learn about what we need to learn about. And a group like Forever Family, you know, that was recently featured in Surviving Death, which is a Netflix special, is not just the mediumship. But it's, it's raising the awareness that this is what's happening and this is what people are experiencing. And Bob and Fran did an amazing thing by creating the foundation because it was out of their loss that they were able to develop this to help others with everyone else's loss. So that to me is really just a beautiful thing. Yeah, they lost their daughter. I know I've mentioned this on the podcast before, but their daughter Bailey Ginsburg passed at 15. She would be about my age now, I believe, same age, maybe she's two years older than me, but I think we're close in age. And just to me, I think seeing, there's really, there's not one right way to get through grief, but you know, you can kind of turn to examples. And to me, Fran and Bob making a meaning of it and helping other people. That's one of the ways I've been able to, I don't want to say get through the loss of my dad, but live with it in a way where my life is still filled with more joy than pain, if that makes sense. And also you mentioned Fran's laugh. I always think sense of humor, like for the first, like almost 
six months, I thought it was wrong to laugh. And just like, how do I have a right to find things funny if my dad's dead? And now, I mean, I laugh more than I ever have. And that was, I think, something that I really saw in Fran that I really admired. And Bob, I mean, they're both two of the funniest people I've ever met. So if that's a little bit of tips, I know most people feel like you're not supposed to laugh for a while. Yeah, there's certain things that I think are hard for people, especially associations. Like when my dad died, um, we were both members of the American Legion, which is an, a, a group that are, is for people that served in the military. And my dad had a high position in the American Legion, and he was an executive officer. So I wrote about this in my book and several stories about it, but I was one of the younger people there. I was one of the few that had served in Iraq there, and I was one of the few women there. And there was many times that I said to my dad, like, I don't want to be here. Like, nobody's bringing up Iraq. Nobody's talking to me. And he said, you could change your table. And I said, change my table. He goes, you could go sit with different people because his group was the World War II guys, you know? And I thought, well, that's interesting. And after he passed away, they made this amazing gesture. They wanted me to take my father's position as the executor officer. And I said, thank you, but it's too painful. Like my father, I could never sit in my father's shoes at all, ever, his chair, his shoes, anything. And I said, thank you, but I can't. And several years later, I had to stop going there because every time I walked in, they'd bring up my father. Every time they you know, tell me a story about my father, I'd see the table we sat at. It was just reminder, reminder, reminder. And I got a phone call and it was a kid that I grew up with, Jimmy McGovern, and he's a police officer in Yonkers. And he said, hey, Kat, why don't you join the VFW? You're a combat veteran. We're here in Yonkers. And I heard my father just change your table. And that's exactly what my dad was saying. And I said, sure. And I joined the VFW. All the people there are young. All the people there served in Iraq or Afghanistan. The children are welcome. Who you know, we're just very friendly to the young. And I thought, geez, Dad, you're right. Change your table, you know. And that piece is important because I still can't go to that American Legion, but I could go to the VFW. And that's where gave me chills. Just change your table and then getting the message. I love that. One interesting thing you do is you do coffee readings, coffee cup readings. I have never heard of that. And that's just so interesting. What does that mean? How did you get into it? What? I yes. yeah. So I talked about that in my first book, Seeing More Than Clouds in Your Coffee, but it was kind of like in my family, we would drink Italian espresso. A lot of my friends and family, I would lean over and I would say, oh, I see this in your cup or I see that in your cup. And as I started to get into my early 20s, I started to do more of it. Like we would be in a cafe in the Bronx. One of my friends from college and I, we'd be sitting in the cafe in the Bronx and he would say, look at my cup. And I'd start saying, and the waitress would come over or other people would look over. And it happens till this day. One of my best friends is Rob Caggiano. He's in the music business. He was in the Anthrax, the band, and he's in Volbeat, the the Danish band now. We'll go out for Greek food. We'll go out for Italian food. No matter where we go, the end is always let's have a cup of coffee. So he wants to do the reading. And I start looking in the cup and the waitress comes over. This person, that person, everybody is interested in the cup. Sometimes the waitress is like, hang on a second, I'll get a cup and I'll do it. So I'd have to like look at the waitress's cup too. It's very simple, but it's, but it's not the same for everyone. 
So when I do the cup, I'm reading the signs, like symbols in the cup. And I can tell and this you this is after someone someone drinks the coffee and the pattern that's left from the remaining coffee beans tells you something about this person's situation. Yeah, exactly. So it's sometimes it's in the past, sometimes it's in the present, sometimes it's in the future. And a lot of people that are skeptic sometimes are not able to have a psychic reading. They're not able to have a mediumship reading. But a coffee cup is a little lighthearted. They could see a symbol there or a symbol there. And they literally can see it. Once you point it out with the spoon and say, look, I see this and I see that, they can see it too. Now, most recently, Liz, which I think is really fascinating, is I posted a picture of a cup on Instagram, Facebook, and I said, what do you see? And I don't can tell you more than 20 people saw it. 20 different things. This is what they saw. That's what they saw. You know, they were convinced of this. They were convinced of that. It's usually the best reading when you're with someone like me that has ability because I use my clairvoyancy. I use my clairaudience. I look at the cup and I could see more than just the cup. So just seeing the symbol is seeing the symbol. But when I could piece it together and formulate the message of the symbol and how it will impact their life or how it will be coming up in their life is even more rewarding for them. So it's interesting. I've actually told people, if you're going to do it at home, try to take some pictures, send them to me if you don't understand it. But it's just a lot of fun. People like to do it at a party because it gets people talking. And people are really surprised how accurate it is, but it's really accurate with someone like me. Just doing each other's coffee, you could see symbols and practice, but to have the whole kind of grouping of gifts makes it, you know, even more impactful. So it's kind of a tool for you to get psychic information. So you, it's a medium information. I think it's more of a tool for the person who's sitting with me because I don't really even need the cup, but for the fact that they like to see the symbols, it's less scary. (laughs) So you can get the same information without the cup, but it's kind of like you can look at it and get, so it's kind of like a fun way to get the information. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And it's very, it's very similar to the tea readings, tea leaf reading. It all kind of goes in the same vein as that. But with the coffee, you can really see images better than the tea. The tea is really just kind of like globs of leaves sitting together. And I just have a question about how it might work. Is it you kind of reading it and that just start getting information? Or do you think there's a PK thing, which is that's mind ability to affect matter, like spoon bending, or they'll say discarnate consciousness. It's not like them moving the coffee a certain way to get a message to you. It's just a fun way for you to get. Yeah. Okay. Um, I like that. I think it's so fun. Even in my book, I wrote about a guy that said, I could not take coffee. I can't drink coffee. I don't want coffee. He gave me hot chocolate and I read the hot chocolate. You could read like espresso. You could read a cappuccino. I could read foam. It's kind of like when someone lays on their back in a field and they say, let me look at the clouds. And you're like, look, I can see a number seven in the sky. There's a seven made out of clouds. So it's really when you train your eye to look at something, you could see like a face in the mountains. You could see like a smile or like maybe rabbit ears in like trees that are growing, you know, it's interesting. So for someone like me doing it, it would be like a fun game, like looking at clouds. And for you doing it, it would be a tool for you to get actual information. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, I love that you do that. I just think you have an exceptionally interesting story, nurse, military, which makes you so believable. And then adding a fun thing of coffee. This is Valentine's Day, which we know is hard. I'd love if you have any special last closing Valentine's messages, as well as where everyone can find you to either book a reading or buy your two books, which I have read and highly recommend. One of the biggest things I think with Valentine's Day I honor those that are passed on. So for Valentine's Day, I do kind of my own ritual. I will, you know, I always have certain people's photographs out all the time. So I'll line up their photographs together and I will always light my white candle, which is um, the scent of rose. Um, And it's really very kind of pungent uh, smell of rose, which is beautiful. But for Valentine's Day, we'll add a very small votive candle, which is red. And uh, the color red is representative of, um, of love. And also for Valentine's Day, I will make rose water. I get fresh red roses and I actually take all of the petals and I drop them in boiling hot water and I stir them and I will make rose water and I will keep that in my living space for seven days. And after seven days that I will discard that rose water, but that to me will be part of my ritual of honoring those that are past that I loved. You ever wonder what mediums do with their free time? How about a 30-something-year-old gay medium living in New York City? Well, in this podcast, you're about to find out. Welcome to Ghost Daddy, a place where LGBTQ plus spiritual people and our cis-hetero allies, of course, have a place to just be themselves and spread their wisdom This is the new face of spirituality. None of that love and light, toxic positivity crap. So pour yourself a vodka soda, (laughs) open up your mind, and start listening. You can listen to the Ghost Daddy podcast anywhere where you listen to podcasts. Hi, everyone. I'm so excited to share that my book, What the Fuck Just Happened? A Sciency Skeptic Explores Grief, Healing, and Evidence of an Afterlife is available now for sale. If you go to wtfjusthappened.net, you can see the link to buy it. I'll also have the link in the podcast show notes. I know many of you want to know how exactly did I come to change my mind about the afterlife? Well, this book is all about the first stages of my exploration into this afterlife evidence to where I'm at today. It starts with the awful part of when I lost my dad, how as a science-minded atheist, I first began to explore if there was any possibility of an afterlife and what and who I found most compelling. I also share some stuff that was not so compelling, such as a very clearly fake psychic medium reading and a pretty ridiculous seance, but that's balanced by some amazing peer-reviewed studies on mediums, medium readings, parapsychologists, and just a whole bunch of what the fucks, including some really inexplicable personal things that happened to me, and some really incredible signs I got from my dad. Despite the topic, it's actually funny, mainly because I'm just 
like such an awkward person. And you also get to learn about all the amazing people and incredible characters I met along the way, as well as more about the research that helped change my mind. And some of the people you learn about have become some of my really good friends and mentors today. So go to WTFJustHappened.net and order it. If you've already read it, please rate and review on Amazon. I cannot tell you how helpful that is. And share with any friends who might be interested. Thank you all. I'm so excited to finally share the full details of this crazy exploration with all of you. And now we're going to pause for a second for the question of the week. Okay, so this isn't exactly a question about afterlife evidence, but it's a great question. Aaron asks, what's the dumbest thing I've ever heard about grief? Oh my God, how do I choose one? There's so many. I think overall, it's just anyone or anytime someone thinks they know better than you about how to handle your grief. Even if they've had a loss, that doesn't mean they know what's right for you to do. So I'd say almost anything that starts with you need to or you should, because how would they know what you need to do? And anything that disrespects your grieving process is really just, oh, don't, no, it's not helpful. And some of the classics that we all unfortunately know, they're in a better place. This was meant to be. Be grateful that, at least. And just really the best thing to do and the best people to surround yourself with in grief are those that respect your individual process and respect your own individual process. There's no right way. There's no wrong way. Sometimes your way and your best friend's way, if you've both had grief, might be completely different. Your way of handling grief might be completely different than how you thought you would handle it. And maybe you handle it differently this week than you did the week before. So just respect your process. If you have a question you want me to answer, send it to hello at wtfjusthappened.net and put question of the week in the subject. I know I usually say first names, but if you want to be completely anonymous, let me know. And feel free to reach out anyway, even if you don't have a question. I can't wait to hear your questions and hear from you. Um, in order to contact me, I'm on Instagram. My Instagram name is CatWitchNYC. I'm on Facebook, which is my company name, Dream Central Station. And I have the two books, which are Sing More Than Cods My Coffee and She Danced by the Light of the Moon. And the best way to contact me for a reading is through the website. And I will put all those links in the show notes. So that'll be easy for you to find. Thank you so much, Kathy. This was Thank such a you. fun conversation. get more information on what the fuck just happened, go to wtfjusthappened.net. There you can order my book, What the Fuck Just Happened? A Sciency Skeptic Explores Grief, Healing, and Evidence of an Afterlife. And you can learn all about how I came to conclude that there most likely is an afterlife. You can also learn about the early stages of my grief 
and the amazing, fascinating people I met along the way. You can also read about how much I harassed them, trying to get evidence, see if they were cheating, and see if they were sane. There, you can subscribe to our newsletter. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. It makes such a difference, especially for a new podcast like this one. And if any of you have had a crazy what the fuck yourself, have any questions, feedback, or just want to say hi, reach out on either Instagram at WTF underscore just underscore happened underscore or email me at hello at WTF just happened.net. And remember, you don't have to draw any final conclusions as you wonder what the fuck just happened.